On June 24, 1995, two eight-year-old girls by the names of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo disappeared seemingly without a trace, snatched off the streets of Grace Helonia, Belgium. The abductions of Lejeune and Russo were only the beginning of a series of unsettling child abductions that would lead to the discovery of heinous crimes committed by a man who is now one of the most infamous and hated men in all of Belgium. The abducted young girls remained missing for many months until their captor, then 39-year-old Marc Dutroux, confessed to their brutal abduction, rape, and murder after he was arrested for unrelated theft charges in August of 1996. For Belgian authorities, Marc Dutroux was not an unfamiliar name. A career criminal, Dutroux had previously spent time in prison from 1987 until the mid-90s, serving time for the abduction and rape of five young girls between the ages of 11 to 19, spanning from June of 1985 to January of 1986. After being released early from prison, Dutroux and his many accomplices, including his then-wife, Michelle Martin, would go on to continue his crimes where he had left off. Only this time, Dutroux escalated from abduction and rape to abduction, rape, and murder. Mark Dutroux's arrest opened the floodgates and raised the possibility of the existence of a depraved ring of pedophilia and sex trafficking deep within the Belgian underground. More than 20 witnesses close to the case ended up dead under mysterious circumstances, and public outcry over Dutroux's crimes revealed a serious miscarriage of justice by the Belgian authorities. This is the story of the Dutroux affair— and as much as the depraved people involved tried to cover it all up, the real, unsettling truth is that this shit really happened. Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome crimes that humans have ever committed. My name is M. As always, I am your host. If you are new here, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are not new here, thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. I am so glad to have you here. So glad to have you listening. I really, really appreciate it. As y'all heard in the intro, the case I'm going to be covering today is that of Marc Dutroux. This is a Belgian case that is also known often as the Dutroux Affair. This case was actually recommended to me by a friend of mine. Um, she had sent me some links and some sources for this case after I had spent about an hour, hour and a half just going over and telling her about all of the really crazy true crime stories that I had in my uh, mental repertoire, I guess, from listening to so many true crime podcasts and like watching true crime videos and things like that on YouTube. I was actually telling her about the case I covered last episode, the one of Armin Meves, the Rotenberg Cannibal. And after I had told her about that one, she's like, I have a really crazy, wild 
disturbing, messed up case that I know of that you should cover um, in one of your episodes. And she had sent me a few links to this and she had been telling me about it just on the phone as well. And I was like, I have literally never heard of this before. It's a Belgian case. Um, It happened back in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, sort of kind of in in that era. So, you know, I was alive, but I wasn't really much more than like a small child back when this case was really, really happening and going on. And I don't think it really got into much on like American news, but it was one of the most infamous cases. It still is one of the most infamous cases that has ever gone on in Belgium. So if you know anybody of Belgian descent or anybody, you know, who might be from Belgium or you have like maybe like friends who are from Belgium or know of people from Belgium. I'm sure if you said the name Mark Dutro to them, they'd know of this case, but I had not known of it. I had not heard of it until my friend had sent me the links for this case. But as I was looking into it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely a case that I need to cover on this podcast. When I was doing the research for this, I actually, I got really, really deeply into it. I try to do as much research as I possibly can for, you know, all of the cases that I've I've covered as in so far and all the cases that I intend to cover in future episodes. But this one has a lot of a lot of background for some crimes that happened before like the actual quote unquote Dutro affair that this case is really, really known for and the crimes that Mark Dutro was really known for. So there are some things that happened before, you know, this main thing. And then there was Mark Dutro's trial in Belgium. Um, and there was a lot of actual like social backlash from Mark Dutro and his crimes and some things that had been revealed during his trial and in in the investigation into the lead up to the trial that the people of Belgium, when these things came to light, it really caused a lot of social backlash and a lot of social protests from the way this case was handled by Belgian authorities. Um, So this is actually going to be a case that I'm going to do in two parts. So the first part that you're listening to now, this is part one, I will be going through and I'll be covering a little bit about Mark Dutro's background, who he was, how he grew up, um, a few of the crimes that he had committed prior to the things he did that would become as known as the Dutro affair, and then the actual crimes that the Dutro affair is known for and what Mark Dutro would end up being put on trial again for and the crimes that the Belgian public would find out about that really caused a lot of that social backlash and social social protests. So my intention is to do this in two parts. I was going to try to do it all in one, but as I was going through the notes that I have on this and all of my research, I was like, if I do this in one part, this is about to be like a two and a half hour episode. So I figured, you know, I'd give myself a little bit of a break. I would give you guys a little bit of a break to not have you have to listen to a two hour, two and a half hour uh, single episode. So you can kind of break it up, you know, listen to part one and listen to part two. I'm going to try to record them back to back so I can get them out to you right away. But this will be done in two separate parts. So I do want to go ahead and jump right in. I'm not going to, you know, take too much longer on this intro, but I do want to give a blanket trigger warning for this case. Um, It does involve mentions of child abduction, rape, sex trafficking, torture, and murder. So if that is not your thing, if you are not wanting to listen to a case that involves um, victimization and sexual assault of young people and children, then I would suggest, you know, maybe 
wait, wait until this case is done. Let's not listen to this episode if that's not your cup of tea. You know, not that it's really anybody's cup of tea, but you get what I'm saying. If this is something you don't think you want to listen to because of the content, feel free to click off. I'll have an I'll have another episode out, you know, hopefully in a couple weeks time that will be, you know, not a case covering the um, kidnapping, rape in a in murder of young girls slash children. So again, trigger warning for that content. But without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. So the first thing I want to do is give a little background to exactly who Mark Dutro is. So Mark Dutro is the, I guess, main character or the main subject of this case, hence why it is known as the Dutro Affair. So Marc Dutroux, he was born in Ixelles, Belgium on November 6th of 1956. And I just also want to give, you know, a, a blanket generalization that this is a Belgian case. A lot of these city names, um, names of people involved are French names. And while I did take four years of French in high school, my pronunciation is probably not that great. So apologies in advance for anything that I butcher you know, beyond belief, if there's any people who are fluent in French or of French descent listening to this, I fully apologize for the way that I'm probably going to butcher some of these names. Anyways, so Marc Dutroux, he was born in Ixelles, Belgium, November 6, 1956. He was the eldest of five children. His father's name was Victor. His mother's name was Janine. And both of his parents, they were actually school teachers. So Mark, he spent the first five years of his life living in the Belgian Congo. Um, this was a colony of Belgium at the time, I do believe. Um, but he and his family, they returned back to Belgium after the Congo crisis, which was um, a period of political upheaval in the Republic of Congo. So all of the Belgian citizens had that had been living in the Belgian Congo when the um, Congo crisis happened. A lot of them relocated to other places back in Europe or other places or back to Belgium like Mark Dutroux and his family had. So uh, Mark Dutroux, like a lot of the people we talk about in these sorts of cases, he did not have the greatest childhood. His parents were both verbally and physically abusive, both to each other and to their children. Um, it was reported in a few of the sources that I saw that Dutroux was often beaten by both of his parents. It wasn't just one or the other. Both of them were physically abusive to Mark. Um, Mark's parents, they did end up divorcing in 1971, and that was when Mark was 15 years old. So even though both of his parents were abusive towards him, I guess his mother was the lesser of two evils. So Mark decided to stay with his mother after his parents split, but he didn't actually end up staying with her for very long. Like they divorced when he was 15, and by the time Mark was 16, he left his mother's house and he was out. He was setting out on his own, trying to support himself. Being 16, he didn't really have a lot of ways to support himself. It was difficult for him to get like a typical job or quote unquote real job. So what Mark did in order to support himself being 16 and on the streets, um, he actually turned to sex work to make enough money to get himself by. So he was doing sex work. He was, you know, basically turning tricks on the Belgian streets, just trying to get enough money to find a place to sleep for the night, find some food, you know, basically just to buy himself the necessities he needed to support himself and pretty much just survive on being 16, 17 years old and living on his own on the streets. He also did turn to petty crimes as well to support himself um, when the sex work wasn't enough. He 
did a lot of like petty theft and things like that. He would steal things from stores. He would, you know, pickpocket people on the street, just, you know, little petty crimes like that. So he could still, again, get enough money or steal the things he needed to just fulfill his basic needs while he was living on his own on the street. Um, He did rack up a bit of a rap sheet when he was younger. I don't think it was anything that he ever spent any sort of like significant time for in juvie or in prison, you know, but he was definitely on Belgian police's radar too when he was younger for these, these petty crimes that he was committing while he was living alone on the streets. He did end up meeting a woman while he was living on the streets. Her name was Francois. Um, and he or she, sorry, she would become his first wife. They married when he was 19 or 20. So some sources say he was 19 when they married. Other sources say he was 20. But either way, they were both pretty young, but they did end up getting married around this time. So Mark and Francois would end up having two children together, um, but they would not stay married for very long. They did get a divorce in 1983. Um, the reason they divorced actually was that Mark had left Francois for another woman. Um, this woman's name was Michelle Martin. She was a primary school teacher. And Michelle Martin would actually later become one of Mark Dutroux's main accomplices when he committed the crimes that he would become infamous for. So Dutro and Martin, they got together and they would actually end up having three more children together. So Mark Dutro has a total of five children. He had two with Francois, his first wife, and three with Michelle Martin, his second wife. So while Dutro and Martin, they got together around 1983 when Mark and Francois first split, but they didn't actually end up getting married until 1989, which just coincidentally also happened to be when both... Mark Dutro and Michelle Martin were in prison for the kidnapping and rape of multiple young girls in the mid to late 80s. So Mark Dutro, he started his life of crime off, like I said, with petty things. So he would steal things. He would steal from stores, from people because he was living on the streets and he was just trying to help himself survive. Basically, he was trying to fulfill his basic his basic life necessities. But he would escalate his crimes into a completely different territory altogether after he had, you know, gotten together with Michelle Martin. I don't specifically know what the trigger for this was or if there even was a trigger, but he wasn't doing any of these things when he was married to Francois, but he was definitely doing them when he and Michelle Martin had gotten together. So... During 1985 to 1987, Mark Dutro had actually um, kidnapped slash abducted, even though that's the same thing, abducted five young women, five young girls, um, and he had kept them hostage for about a day or two each. And while he held them hostage, he would rape them. He would take photos of them. And then once he was finished with them, he would basically go and just drop them off in a random spot, but he would let them go. His MO was not to keep these girls for a very long time. He would abduct them usually off the streets. He would have help from Michelle Martin and usually another accomplice or two would also be there helping him abduct these girls. And then he would take them back to one of his houses that he has, because as we'll come to find, Mark Dutro had multiple houses scattered all over Belgium. So he would abduct these young girls. He would take them back to one of his residences where he would assault them, where he would rape them. And then after he was finished with that, after a day or two, he would let these girls go. 
So this again, this began in um, 1985, specifically October of 1985. So it was actually one of Dutro's last victims, um, who was a 14-year-old girl. She's known only by the name of Axel D. Um, she was actually the one who was able to identify Mark Dutro, Michelle Martin, and another one of their accomplices after they had released her, after they'd abducted and um, assaulted her. In her later testimony against Dutro, Axel reported that she had been abducted by Dutro, Michelle Martin, and another one of Dutro's accomplices, who was a man named Jean Van Pettigam. Axel also reported that Pettigam had told her that he was, quote, part of a gang. I think this was something that Dutro or Pettigam had come up with to tell to the girls that they abducted to make it less likely that the girls would go to the authorities after they were released. Because they felt that if the girls thought that they were part of a dangerous gang, that they would be too afraid to tell the police what had happened to them. Um, but not Axel. So she um, she was abducted. Again, she was assaulted. And after a couple days, she was let go. And almost immediately after she was released by Dutro and Martin and Pettigam, she had gone basically straight to the authorities to let them know what had happened to her. So... There aren't many specific details about what happened to Axel beyond that she was abducted and she was raped by Dutro and by Pettigam on before she was later released. But she was the one, again, the first of their victims to go to the police and tell them what had happened to her. So after Axel had gone to the police and told them that she had been abducted, that she had been raped, um, Pettigam was the one who was arrested first. So he was brought in for questioning regarding his involvement in the crime. And it was Pettigam who would be the one to admit to actually aiding Dutro and Martin and abducting Axel. Um, so he was the one who gave police Dutro's name. He was the one who gave police Michelle Martin's name as well. And he also told police that Axel, she was not his and Dutro's first victim at all. Um, according to him, the first victims were two girls from Moreland Welts in Hainaut, Belgium. So Hainaut is a province in Belgium. Um, these two victims, they were never actually found. They were never located. I don't believe Pettigam had really given any more specific information beyond that the girls were from Moreland Wells, that they were abducted, that they were raped, and then they were released. So the police were never actually able to confirm if Pettigam's story of these two girls being abducted from Moreland Wells was actually true or not. But... They were able to go through and confirm um, four additional victims, I believe, um, five including Axel, but four additional victims that they had not already known about through um, confessions from Jean Van Pettigam. So the first confirmed victim was an 11-year-old girl by the name of Sylvie D. She was abducted and raped by Dutro, Martin, and Pettigam on June 7th, 1985. The next victim was a 19-year-old girl known by the name of Maria V. She was also abducted by the trio on October 17, 1985. Again, she was abducted and raped. Maria would later come forward and testify that there was an additional man involved in her abduction as well. So um, another person besides Dutro, Martin, and Pettigam, but this additional fourth man, he was never identified. Um, Pettigam never confessed who he was, Dutro never confessed who he was, and Martin never confessed who he was either. So this fourth man's identity is still unknown to this date. Um, after Maria, Dutro's next victim was a 15-year-old girl known by the name of Elizabeth G. 
she was abducted by Dutroux from Ponticelles in Hainaut on December 18, 1985. Pettigam reported to police that Dutroux had abducted Elizabeth, raped her, and then also took Polaroid photos and um, additional videos of Elizabeth's naked body while he had her captive. Um, on January 17, 1986, the next victim abducted was a, an 18-year-old girl by the name of Catherine B., she was abducted from Obai in Hainaut province. She was also raped by Dutroux and also two additional unidentified accomplices. Um, neither Martin nor Pettigam actually were involved in this crime. Pettigam did know about it from Dutroux having told him, but he nor Michelle Martin were actually, again, were not involved in the abduction of Catherine or her rape. But again, they did know about the crime. They did know that it occurred. So after Pettigam had been arrested for questioning and he had given all this information to police, police went back and they arrested Mark Dutroux and they arrested Michelle Martin also in February of 1986. So this was not long after the rape and abduction of Axel, because um, again, she was the one who initially went to the police and had told her what happened. Soon after that, they were able to pick up Jean Van Pettigam, who basically, you know, sang like a canary and gave them all the information that they needed to go ahead and arrest Mark Dutroux and Michelle Martin as well. Um, they were actually able to, the police, I mean, were actually able to track down Dutro and Martin really thanks to Pettigam, who was the one that Axel was able to identify because he had this habit, I guess, of really oversharing things about himself to the victim. So he, you know, was just chatting with them like they were friends, like he was not, you know, the person who had literally just helped abduct and rape them he would give them a lot of information about like you know he would give them his real name talk about like what he did where he was from basically like they were besties and they were just having a nice chat and he would spill all of this information about himself to these girls um which you know thankfully would result in him being arrested him being questioned and the second that he got questioned again he just pretty much gave everything up he, he absolutely just sang for the police and gave them all the information they needed to go ahead and arrest Mark Dutroux and Michelle Martin as well. Um, so after their arrest in February of 1986, Dutroux, Martin, and Pettigam were all put on trial for the abductions and rapes of Sylvie D., Maria V., Elizabeth G., Catherine B., and Axel D., on April 26, 1989, all three, so Dutroux, Martin, and Pettigam, they would all be convicted for their roles in the abduction and rape of all five girls. So you think this would be good, right? You're like, oh, yeah, that's great that they they caught them. They put them on trial. They were able to, you know, sentence them for these horrible crimes that they had committed against these girls. Um, but what is really infuriating about this is that Dutroux, Martin, and Pettigam, they barely got any prison time for any of these crimes. The sentences they got were ridiculous. They were so short. It's absolutely infuriating. So Michelle Martin, she got the least time of everyone because she was only involved in the abduction of the girls. She did not sexually assault them. She did not rape them. So because she was only involved in the abduction, she got five years in prison. Pettigam, because he was simply an accomplice, um, he did 
abduct help abduct the girls. He did assault a few of them, but he was not the quote unquote mastermind behind the operation. He got a little bit more time than Michelle Martin. So he ended up getting 6.5 years, six and a half years. And then Dutro, who was the mastermind behind it, who was the one selecting the girls that he wanted to abduct. He was the one driving the entire operation. And he was the one doing primarily the assaulting and the raping of these girls. With all of that, he only got 13 and a half years in prison. So for abducting and raping five girls, 13 and a half years, that's all he got. So you would think that's the worst part, you know, that he only got 13 and a half years for abducting and raping five young girls. But no, it's not the worst part. What the worst part is, is that Dutroux ended up being released from prison early. So he did not even have to spend the entirety of his 13 and a half year sentence in prison. He honestly barely spent any time in prison at all. He was sentenced in 1989 and then he was released in 1992. So he was released on the authority of a man named Melchior Wathlet, who was the prime minister of Belgium at the time. So Wathlet, he actually went against the recommendations of the prosecutor who had prosecuted Dutroux, Martin, and Pettigam, um, and he also went against the recommendations of Dutroux's prison psychiatrist. Both the prosecutor and the psychiatrist, they said, no, he is not ready to be released early. He definitely still needs to be in here. He has a high chance of reoffending if he gets out early, basically. But Melchior Wathlet, he really didn't give two shits about that. He said, no, I think he's fine. I'm going to go ahead and, and let him out early. So Melchior Wathlet, he okays Dutro's release from prison. Um, Dutro gets out in 1992. And to absolutely nobody's surprise, Dutro was back on his bullshit very, not very long after he got out of prison. So... Not only was Mark Dutroux a disgusting pedophile rapist piece of shit, um, he was also pretty much a straight-up, like, Joanne the Scammer. He loved robbery and fraud. So, specifically, actually, he loved robbing and defrauding the Belgian government. Um, when he was in prison, Dutroux had actually managed to convince a health specialist that he was disabled due to mental illness— and because of that, he was then able to qualify for and collect a $1,200 monthly public assistance check from the government. He also managed to convince this doctor that he suffered from sleeping problems um, and conned this doctor into prescribing him sedatives, which, again, to nobody's surprise, Dutroux did not take himself because he didn't actually have sleeping problems. He took these sedatives, he pocketed them, basically, and then he would use them later when he was back on his bullshit back abducting and raping young girls. He would use these sleeping pills to sedate the girls after he had abducted them to make it easier for him to get them back to one of his residences, um, one of which he had many scattered across Belgium. Um, specifically, he had seven houses scattered across Belgium. This man owned seven houses. So he 
has seven houses and he is getting assistance from the government and the government never reduced his assistance by a single penny. And it wasn't like these residences were not on the books or they were not like registered. I don't know. Do you have to register residences? I feel like it's hard to hide a residence. Like they were all in his name, pretty much. His name was on the deed. The government knew that he owned these residences, that he had seven houses all over Belgium in different, different cities. Um, but yet the government was like, no, we'll still give you your full, your full assistance amount, your $1,200 a month. We're not going to reduce that at all. So Mark Dutro was playing the Belgian government like a fiddle. He had seven houses, <laughs> had plenty of money to go off of, you know, doing the shady shit that he'd been doing. Um, but still, he was getting that assistance from the Belgian government because they either just didn't give a shit or they just didn't catch on. There was actually one specific house that Mark Dutro would end up using to carry out the crimes that would become the crux or the basis of what we know as the Dutro affair. So this was a residence that he had in Marcenel, which was a town, a city in Hainaut, Belgium as well. Again, Hainaut is the province. Um, and he had actually gone and constructed a basement dungeon in this house in Marcenel. And that is where he would bring many of the girls that he would end up kidnapping. Um, he would take them, he would abduct them, and he would hold them prisoner in this dungeon that he had constructed in his basement. So... The two main victims that really sparked the beginning of what the investigators and the public know as the Dutro affair was the abduction of two young girls, two eight-year-old girls um, named Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. So before we get into exactly what had happened with Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, I just want to give a little bit more background of what exactly happened after Dutro got out of prison in 1992. So he was released, and the second he's out, he is going back and he's meeting up with Michelle Martin, who had also gotten out of prison early. So he does decide to lay low for a couple of years, right? He goes back to Michelle Martin. I have no idea what happened to his three children at this point that he had with her. Cause like she was in prison, he was in prison. I would assume maybe they were living with a relative or, you know, maybe they were under the care of the government, but either way, Mark Dutro gets out of prison in 1992 and he's right back with Michelle Martin. So he lays low again for a little while with her. But by 1995, he is right back to doing the sort of shit that he went to prison in the first place for. So that is abducting and raping young girls. So one of Dutro's main things with this as well is he did not like to commit these crimes alone. Mark Dutro always had accomplices with him when he was doing those sorts of things. So he had, um, around 1995, Dutroux had met a man by the name of Michel Lelevre. Um, This man was a drug addict and a petty thief, and he would later become one of Dutroux's main accomplices for the crimes that he committed um, for what we know as the Dutroux affair, starting again with the abduction of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. So with the help of Michelle Martin again and Michel Lelevre, that is when Dutro in June 24th, 1995, that is when he goes and he kidnaps Julie and Melissa. On the day of their abduction, Julie and Melissa, they were just out for a walk in um, the town of Grace Helonia, which is a small town in the province of Liege, Belgium. 
It is believed that Dutro himself was the one to abduct Julie and Melissa. Um, after this, he took them back to his home in Marcinelle, and he imprisoned them in his basement dungeon. For months, Dutro kept the girls in that dungeon, where he repeatedly raped them, oftentimes recording the abuse on video. He took a lot of photos as well. Some sources say that Dutro distributed these videos to other pedophiles on the black market, but I'm not positive of the truth of that. I only saw it, I believe, in one source that I had read through. I mean, I think it's entirely possible that he did this. Um, we do know, based on later testimony, when Dutro does go on trial for these crimes, that he did he did take these videos and he did take photos of these girls. But what is not confirmed, what I wasn't able to confirm, is whether or not he distributed them. But it is confirmed that he did take these photos and he did take videos of their abuse. Um, but honestly, knowing what a sick fuck Mark Dutro was, he probably did distribute these photos and these videos to other other pedophiles on the black market. So I really wouldn't be surprised if he did exactly what it was reported in that source that he did. Um, it was also said by Michelle Lelevra that Julian Melissa had been kidnapped at the behest of a man named Jean-Michel Nihul. Nihul was a pub owner from Brussels, and he was a pretty high-powered businessman in Belgium, and he was also known to frequent underground sex parties in Belgium. So, um, Lever also told police later that Dutro and Nihul, they had actually met in prison, and they had been the ones to arrange the plans for the kidnapping of the young girls while they were still incarcerated. So according to Lelevra, Dutro and Nihul had been the ones who had planned all of these abductions that Dutro would go on to later commit. Um, Nihul will also come into play a little bit later when we talk about what Dutro had testified for his reasoning to commit these crimes when he was on trial for this. But just keep that name in mind again because um, Jean-Michel Nihul, he does come back into play. Um, we'll fast forward a few months later after the kidnapping of Julian Melissa. So this is August 23rd, 1995. Um, Dutro and Lelevra ended up kidnapping two more girls on this day. They were 17-year-old Anne Marshall and 19-year-old Effie Lambrax. Um, Anne and Effie, they were two best friends. They had been coming home from a night out at a club when they were abducted. They were actually on holiday. Um, after they were abducted, Effie and Anne, they were also brought back to Dutro's home in Marcinelle. But because the dungeon was already occupied by Julie and Melissa, Anne and Effie were kept imprisoned in chains in one of the bedrooms in Dutro's home in Marcinelle. Like Julie and Melissa as well, Anne and Effie were also repeatedly raped by Dutro and Lelevra. Although it is unknown if Dutro filmed these rapes in the same way he filmed that of Julie and Melissa, I don't believe there was any sort of evidence found to point to that. I don't know if Lelevra or Dutro ever testified to having filmed the abuse in the same way they filmed it or took photos of it with um, Julie and Melissa. But what is known, again, is that they were kept in chains in one of the bedrooms in Dutro's home, and they were repeatedly assaulted, repeatedly raped by both Dutro and Michelle Lelevra. Um, it would later be revealed in testimony by Michelle Martin that sometime in September of 1995, Dutro and another accomplice who was named Bernard Weinstein, they took Anne and Effie to another one of Dutro's homes in Jumet, which is another small town in the province of Hainaut. Um, 
Prior to this, both Anne and Effie, they had been raped, they had been drugged, and they had been wrapped in plastic. So they are alive. They're just very heavily sedated, again, likely with some of the sedatives that Dutroux had conned his prison psychiatrist into prescribing for him. But Dutroux and Weinstein, after they had wrapped both girls up in plastic, they pretty much stuffed them in a van, drove them out to another one of Dutroux's homes, again in Jumet, where they then took the girls, still wrapped in plastic, out into the backyard of this home, where they horrifically murdered them by dumping them into the ground and burying them alive. So now... Along with child abduction rape, Dutroux has escalated to murder. So prior to this, though his crimes were still horrific, he was at least letting his victims go. Um, I don't know if this was something that he was doing because he had felt like he'd gotten burned from letting the girls go initially. Like he figured, I don't know if he figured that he had to keep the girls forever or murder them because when he had let them go, like when he had let Axel go, she had run straight to pull to the police, which had resulted in him getting arrested and him going to prison for these crimes. So I don't know if this was, you know, a spur of the moment thing that he had did with Anne and Effie, or if it was something that he had planned. He doesn't really give any more information as to why he murdered the girls, just that he did murder them. So it's really unknown what his driving motive for murdering Anne and Effie was. Um, so along with these crimes now of child abduction, rape, and murder, um, Dutroux was also still involved in a lot of theft and robbery. And his accomplices, they also aided him with these other crimes on the side as well. So Weinstein, um, the accomplice that had just helped Dutroux murder Anne and Effie, um, at Dutroux's behest, Weinstein had helped a man named Philippe Divers with stealing a van full of money and hiding it in a small hangar. It was then later discovered by the owner of the hangar, and the owner had actually reported the stolen van to police. Um, after it was reported, Dutroux and Weinstein, they actually began to suspect that Divers, um, along with another one of Divers' friends named Pierre Rousseau, they suspected that these two had betrayed them. So they were, you know, clearly not happy that they thought that Divers and Rousseau had betrayed them. So on November 4th, 1996, Dutroux and Weinstein went out looking for Divers and Rousseau. They basically wanted to interrogate them about the discovery of the van. Um, they ended up luring Divers and Rousseau over to Dutroux's home, where they then drugged them and held them hostage. So this is, again, the home in Marcinelle that they had lured them to. Um, they also went to Rousseau's own home as well, where they found Rousseau's girlfriend. Um, her name was Benedict Jadot. Uh, they also forced Benedict to go back with them to Dutroux's home in Marcinelle for questioning as well. So Dutroux and Weinstein, they interrogated Jadot for an unknown amount of time before they actually decided to leave the home in Marcinelle again in search of another unknown person. This was probably um, a person they thought had also been involved with Divers and Rousseau and had like plotted against Dutroux and Weinstein when it came to this van, um, but they basically left Divers and Rousseau chained up in the basement dungeon. Um, I don't know if Benedict Jadot was chained up, but they basically just left her in the house as well. And then they went on in search of this unknown person. 
So while Dutroux and Weinstein were off searching for this unknown fourth person, Jadot actually managed to escape and alert one of Dutroux's neighbors, who then called the police. So when Dutroux found out that the police were looking for him and Weinstein, he decided that since Weinstein was turning out to be more of a liability than any help to him, that he had to get rid of Bernard Weinstein. Bernard Weinstein had to go because in Dutroux's mind, if the police were looking for Bernard Weinstein, I mean, they were also looking for Dutroux as well, but who the fuck knows what was going on in his head at this time. But he basically thinks to himself, the police are looking for Bernard Weinstein. He's a liability to me. I have to get rid of him. So what Dutroux did was he ended up kidnapping Weinstein and holding him captive in the basement dungeon in his home in Marcinelle from November 13th to November 20th. During this time, because the dungeon was being occupied by Weinstein, um, Julie and Melissa at this time, who are still being imprisoned by Dutroux, they're still being held captive by him, they were actually allowed to freely roam around Dutroux's home during the time period that Bernard Weinstein was being held prison in the dungeon. Um, On the last day of Weinstein's captivity, that was November 20th, Dutroux had drugged him with rehypnol, that is the date rape drug for any of you who don't know, Um, after which he took hose clamps, which if you don't know what a hose clamp is, you know, you can do a quick pause of this, a quick Google search, Um, but they're basically steel metal clamps that have a like a screw on the end that you can twist that tightens the clamp and they are used pretty much to hold hoses like water hoses, air hoses, duct hoses, whatever to like spigots or to um like other tubes or other entry points in the wall like if it's a furnace but they're basically made to clamp the hose onto whatever it is that the hose needs to be clamped onto so you can turn them and you can tighten them very 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 tightly to be airtight to be watertight whatever it is that you need them for so Dutroux took these hose clamps and he put them on Bernard Weinstein's testicles And he interrogated Weinstein again about where the van was, where the money was, and whether he knew anything about Divers and Rousseau betraying him, whether Weinstein was in this some sort of like additional subplot to turn against Dutroux. Basically, Dutroux was paranoid as hell, and he was just trying to interrogate Bernard Weinstein to get any information out of him that he possibly could. But Weinstein didn't have any information because he hadn't been involved in any sort of like wild double crossing subplot against Mark Dutroux. But Dutroux didn't know that. So he basically tortured and interrogated Weinstein, tried to get the answers that he was looking for. And when Weinstein couldn't give him these answers, Dutroux was like, Okay, if I can't get what I want from you, I guess I am going to do the only thing that's left for me to possibly do to you, which was to murder him. So Dutroux takes a drugged up Weinstein. He throws him in the back of his van. He takes him out to his house again in Jumet, and he murders um, Bernard Weinstein in the same way that he and Weinstein had murdered Anne and Effie. So he wraps Bernard Weinstein up and he throws him into a grave and he buries Bernard Weinstein alive. Um, and excuse me, it wasn't the house in Jumet. It was one of his homes in uh, Sar-la-Buissière. So this was relatively close to the house that he had in Marcinelle and in Jumet, but the way that he murdered Bernard Weinstein was the same that he had murdered on um, Anne and Effie again, which was 
to bury him alive. Um, after Weinstein was murdered, Dutroux went back to his home in Marcinelle, and he again forced Julie and Melissa back into the dungeon. And this, sadly, is where Julie and Melissa would stay until the end of their lives. On December 6, 1995, Dutroux was arrested in relation to the theft of the van. At this time, Julie and Melissa were still in prison in the dungeon in Dutroux's basement. Um, Dutroux would later testify that he made sure to tell his wife, Michelle Martin, to make sure that the girls were provided with food and fresh water while Dutroux was incarcerated for the theft of that van. Um, unfortunately for the girls, Martin would neglect to provide them with food and water because, as she would later state, she knew the girls were imprisoned in the basement, but she was too frightened to go down there and feed them. Detroit was released from prison for the car theft on March 20th, 1996. Um, Dutroux would testify later initially that when he returned to his home in Marcinelle on this date, he said that both Julie and Melissa were still alive, but barely. So before he was arrested for the car theft, he had placed some food and some water down in the basement dungeon for Julie and Melissa. But based on how long he was incarcerated, this amount of food, this amount of water would not have been enough to sustain the girls for the amount of time that Dutroux was imprisoned. And that is why, according to Dutroux, he had told Michelle Martin to go down into the dungeon and make sure that the girls had food and fresh water. But Michelle Martin apparently, again, was just too scared to go down there and feed the girls. But Dutroux said... That when he got back from prison, when he was released, again, he said that they were alive, but that they were barely alive. Um, he stated that Julie had died that same day and that Melissa had died four days later after Dutroux's attempts to save her had failed. Um, later on, though, during his actual trial, he did end up changing this story, and he admitted that both girls were already dead when he arrived back home to Marcinelle after being released from prison. So, because Michelle Martin had been too frightened to bring the girls food and water, even though she knew that they were imprisoned in the dungeon and Mark Dutroux had specifically told her to go down and give them food and give them water, Julie and Melissa had starved to death in this basement dungeon. Because again, even though Dutroux had left food, left water, it was not enough to sustain them for the amount of time that Dutroux was in prison. So they basically, these two poor, young, eight-year-old girls, they just wasted away in this basement for months. They starved to death, and by the time Dutroux was out of prison, both girls were already dead. After they had died, Dutroux took their bodies, and he took them out to the home again in Sarlat-Boussière, the same place that he had buried um, Bernard Weinstein. And he took the girls, and he also buried them in the backyard right where he had buried or very close to where he had buried the body of Bernard Weinstein. With Julie and Melissa dead, it was not long before Dutroux would kidnap another girl to keep captive in his basement dungeon. Um, on May 28th, 1996, Dutroux actually um, abducted another girl. This was 12-year-old Sabine Darden. She was riding her bike to school in Tournai, which is another small town in the province of Hainaut. Sabine was held captive in the dungeon where she was starved also and repeatedly raped by Dutroux in the same manner that he assaulted all of his victims. 
Um, Sabine, luckily, she would survive being in prison by Marc Dutroux. And she would actually later go on to write a book about her experience called I Choose to Live. Um, This is a book that I actually read as part of my research for this case. I read it on Kindle. So if you have like Kindle Unlimited or any other Kindle subscription, you can find it on there. Um, It is very honest, very well written. Um, She is very frank about the events that happened to her, both her abduction, her imprisonment, and her rape. Um, If that was something you're interested, I do highly recommend the book. Of course, its subject matter is very dark, but the way it's written and the way she tells her story is done, done very, very well. So I do highly recommend that book. Again, it's called I Choose to Live. Um, But in that book, Sabine, she does describe the moment that she was kidnapped by Mark Dutroux. She'd had the sense that someone was following her that day as she was riding her bike to school. Um, And then seemingly out of nowhere, she writes, she heard an engine coming up behind her. So she had been riding her bike to a friend's house at this time because her and this friend, they would always meet up at the friend's house and then they would ride their bikes the rest of the way to school together. Um, So she did make it to that friend's house. This was another girl, same age that she was. Um, But she said when she pulled up to the house, either the friend was not there or the friend did not see her arrive. Um, But either way, she pulls up to the friend's house, but then almost immediately the van that was following her pulls up behind her as well. She described in the book the van that Dutro drove. Um, She quotes as saying... It was a real old banger, the kind of van that looked as if it was lived in by squatters. Three seats in front and a miserable bunk thing in the back and disgusting brown and yellow checked curtains with hundreds of stickers plastered all over the windows. So this van pulls up behind her. She says she barely had enough time to process that before the door of the van was being yanked open and a man was leaning out of it, after which she was yanked off her bike and she was pulled straight into the van. The second she's pulled into the van, she's wrapped up in a blanket, and the man that had grabbed her tries to shove a handful of pills into her mouth. Um, Sabine states that she began to yell, she began to kick, and she recalls that the man had said to her, quote, just shut up and nothing will happen to you. So Sabine was feisty. She was very fiery. So she immediately begins questioning this man. She's asking who he was and what he wanted, what he was doing. Um, And Dutroux, who was the man who had grabbed her, um, Sabine actually describes him as, quote, a creep with horrible eyes and dirty, greasy hair, oily enough to fry chips in. Um, So he had been the one to grab her again, and he grew very frustrated very quickly with her yelling, her kicking, her questions. And because he was frustrated, what he did um, to try to get her to stop fighting was strike her across the face hard enough that she was knocked completely to the other side of the van. Dutroux then ordered the driver of the van, who was Michelle Lelevra, his accomplice, to grab Sabine's bike. So Lelevra does as told. He gets out of the van, he grabs the bike, and he chucks it into the back of the van where Sabine and Dutroux are, and then he gets back into the driver's side and he drives the van away. All of this, Sabine describes the abduction, the taking of the bike, the wrapping her in the blanket, you know, Dutroux striking her. She said everything took only about a minute from the time that she had seen the van pull up behind her to the time that um, Lelevra had grabbed her bike, threw it in the van, and drove the van away from the area where she was abducted. Um, 
the most detail that I was able to get about any of the abductions um, and the subsequent rape and other abuse that happened after these girls were abducted comes from Sabine's book. She was the only one that actually was able to either survive to tell her tale or willingly told her tale in a book like this that was available just for the public to read. Um, so she accounts that when they arrived to Dutro's home in Marcinelle, Dutro had tried to force her into a blue metal trunk, which she recalls had been no bigger than a toolbox. Um, Dutro and Lelevra had forced her into the trunk anyways. So she she says that she was a, a small child. She was, you know, she was 12, but she was pretty small, pretty slight. Um, but this... This trunk, again, that they tried to force her in was, like, toolbox size, basically. So she really had to curl up in there. Dutro and Lelevra really forced it. Um, and she said that even though she did semi-fit in the trunk, that the lid of it, like, was not able to close and they were not able to lock her in there. Um, so Dutro and Lelevra basically had to carry the trunk into the home with her in it. Um, and they brought her into just one of the random rooms in Dutro's home. So this is where Sabine would stay for the first three days that she was held captive by Mark Dutro. Um, she was kept in one of these rooms. She was chained to a bed. Um, she was kept naked or semi-naked. And Dutro would come into the room to repeatedly rape her and to take Polaroids of her naked body. He would tell her that he was only holding her captive until her parents paid him ransom money, and after that, he would let her go. Um, he would also tell her that she was lucky that it was him who had taken her because he worked for a quote-unquote boss who would have done even worse to her and wouldn't care whether she lived or she died. After the first three days of her captivity, that is when Dutro then took Sabine down to the basement dungeon. And this was, again, the same dungeon where he had held Julie and Melissa captive until they had died of starvation. Dutro, he kept Sabine imprisoned for months. He would alternate between keeping her imprisoned in the dungeon and taking her to the upstairs of the house, um, where he would rape her, after which he would sometimes force her to watch pornography with him, or he would taunt her with all of the ways that she would be tortured by his, again, quote-unquote, boss, if said boss were to ever find out that Dutro was keeping Sabine alive. Um, Dutro actually would only be satisfied with Sabine only for a few months. Um, he again, you know, felt that nasty pedophile itch where, you know, one young girl captive just wasn't enough for this sicko. He he needed another girl. And that was kind of his pattern for these crimes that he committed again after he got out of prison was that he would abduct girls in pairs. Right? He abducted Julie and Melissa together. He abducted Anne and Effie together. And Sabine was different in the fact that she had been abducted singularly. There was not a second girl abducted on the same day or with Sabine. So a few months again after Dutro had been keeping Sabine hostage, he decides that he needs to abduct another girl. So on August 9th, 1996, Dutro kidnapped 14-year-old Letitia Delhez while she was walking home from her local swimming pool in Bertrix, another town in the province of Luxembourg, Belgium. So luckily for both Delhez and Darden, there was a witness to um, Letitia's abduction. So this witness was able to describe Dutro's van and also provide the license plate number to police. 
And it was on August 13th, 1996, that both Dutroux and Michelle Lelever were arrested. Initially, a search of Dutroux's home would prove to be inconclusive. I'm not sure if they actually searched this home in Marcinelle, because again, Dutroux had seven homes. But the police did attempt to search at least one of these residences after um, Lelevra and Dutroux had been arrested. But again, that search had come up inconclusive. Thankfully, however, two days after Dutroux and Lelevra were arrested, both of them would end up making full confessions to the police. The same day that they confessed, um, Dutroux would actually lead police to his home in Marcinelle, and he took them down to the dungeon where Sabine and Letitia were being held, and the two girls, thankfully, were subsequently rescued by the police. On August 17, 1996, Dutroux also took police to his home in Sarla Boussier, where they uncovered the bodies of Julie Lejeune, Melissa Russo, and Bernard Weinstein. On September 3, 1996, the remains of Anne Marshall and Effie Lambrex were discovered in the backyard of Dutroux's home in Jumet. Along with the remains of Dutroux's victims, police had also located hundreds of commercial adult pornographic videos, along with the large number of homemade sex films that Dutroux had made with Martin, and also that had some videos of the abuse of Dutroux's victims on them as well, and they found hundreds of these tapes scattered across multiple properties that Dutroux owned. So that is where I am going to finish up part one of this case. So Dutroux, Levra, and subsequently Michelle Martin was also arrested. I didn't really get too much into that because she wasn't as involved in this second round of crimes as she was in the first set of crimes that had imprisoned Dutroux in the first place. She definitely knew about the abduction. She knew very damn well what Dutroux and Lelever were doing, um, but she was not as involved in the abductions as she had been, again, with the crimes that happened between 1985 and 1987. Um, but she does get arrested after Dutroux and Lelever confess um, because she she's arrested again in relation to the deaths of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. As I mentioned, she did end up testifying to the police that she knew that Julie and Melissa were in prison in the basement dungeon and that when Dutroux had been arrested, he had told her to go down and provide them with food again, but she did not because she was too frightened, as she says, which is fucking bullshit if you ask me. But she does get arrested as well in relation to the deaths of Julie and to Melissa um, shortly after both Dutroux and Lelevra were arrested as well. So uh, that is where I'm going to, again, cap part one. We've gone over all of the crimes that Dutroux had committed, the abductions of those five girls between 1985 and 1987, the absolute ridiculous prison sentence that Mark Dutroux had only gotten uh, 13 and a half years, but he actually got out after uh, three years. So next part, what I'm going to talk about is the trial of Mark Dutroux and the information that comes out based on Mark Dutroux's own testimony about his crimes and the reason that he committed them. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the public outcry that resulted from this case um, and then go into detail um, about what really makes this case so infamous, you know, aside from the heinous crimes that were committed. Um, but what really makes this crime 
so infamous and what had upset the Belgian public so much when they found out about it was that there were a lot of accusations by the public that the police, A, had severely fumbled the investigation, and B, that they were actively trying to cover Dutro's crimes up. Um, because spoiler alert, what Dutro would allege in his testimony was that he did not kidnap these girls because he wanted to. He kidnapped them because he was just basically a low-level goonie in a Europe-wide black market pedophile sex trafficking ring. Um, this is also where Jean-Michel Nihul will come back into play. Remember, I mentioned him a little bit early on in this episode. He was an accomplice that Dutro had met in prison. Um, he actually does also get arrested for these crimes um, Dutro committed as well as like an accomplice to them, um, which I'll go a little bit more into that again in part two when we talk about the trial, the testimony, the evidence, the absolute fumbled investigation by police and then exactly why the public was so convinced that the police were actively trying to cover this case up. Um, so that will be covered in part two. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed part one. I'm going to try to get part two recorded very soon so I can post these pretty much back to back. Um, but again, that was part one. I hope to see you back for part two. You can follow me on Instagram at TSRH Podcast. Um, I also have an email address if you have any case suggestions or any comments about the episodes. If you'd like to email me, that is TSRHpodcast at gmail.com. But at the very least, it'd be pretty cool if you could follow me on the Instagram. I post case updates. I post some pictures that are relevant to the cases that I'm covering. And I do always like little coming soon posts, let you know what case I'm going to be covering next. Um, but of course, the next episode that I'm going to post after this one is going to be, again, part two of the Dutro affair. So I hope to see you back for this one. And again, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next one. Bye.